0: So we're doing a study in the life of David, working our way through 1 Samuel, and we're like two chapters away from finishing the first half. So that's something, right? So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 29, and it's short. It's a little tiny mini chapter. So we're going to read it all. I'm going to read you the whole thing first, and then we'll kind of take it apart as we go, okay? Now, this may seem a little bit strange because we're really studying David, but David may not seem to be merely the... The focus here is similar to last week. So here it is. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, an Israel camp by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? And Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He's already been with over a year. From the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. High praise. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him, with Achish that is, and they said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about on their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you've been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. (laughs) What have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against... Quote, "The enemies of my Lord the king." Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said he must not go with us into battle, up with us into battle. now get up early along with your masters servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went to Jezreel okay. Here's what's going on. We've been, we're not really intending to do a study of 1 Samuel. We're really trying to do a study of the life of David. Um, it just so happens that the life of David is recorded in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and a bunch of other places besides. Lots of psalms. And he's, as we've said, he's the most broadly attested character in the Bible except, except Jesus. Tons and tons of material about him. We've gotten to a point in the story, though, where there's multiple things going on simultaneously. And so when we read this, we have an inclination to read things as if it's like a sequence of events. A, then B, then C, then D. But what's going down right now is we spent a whole, who were we with last week? Do you remember? Saul. Saul, we were with Saul. This week we're going to be really with Achish, um, although David is here with Akish. And these things are happening essentially concurrently. And what's happening now is going to be concurrent with what's, what's about to be happening uh, in, a, in, a, in a war with Saul. And it's just hard to be in two places at once. And so the narrator is kind of jumping back and forth. We've been studying David, but we've also spent a lot of time with Saul because he's a big deal. And now we've got to take a look at this other character, Akish, trying to kind of watch this thing. This story um, of Saul with Akish was interrupted with the story of the witch of Endor. So do you remember we, we, we he goes to uh, the Philistines, he hangs out with Akish, and then that story breaks. We do the whole Saul with Endor thing, and the, now we're, we're picking back up to what we had looked at earlier. Okay? So... If you want to see the real context of this, it's not so much chapter twenty-eight as much as it's chapter twenty-seven. Okay, makes sense. So we're twenty-seven was David going to Achish, and then twenty-eight is the Witch of Endor, and then now we're back to it. So we're kind of creating a sandwich to help us realize, oh, these are happening at the same time; these are interspersed. So far, so good. Go back then to look at the very beginning of chapter twenty-eight, which was kind of the tail end of twenty-seven, and it says this. David says to Akish, then you will see yourself what your servant can do. And Akish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay? And then we're off to Saul and the witch of Endor, and then now we're finally back to pick up this story. What's the impression you get from that little short statement, 28-2, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life? What are we meant to obtain from that? Zach?
1: Akish has got full trust in David?
0: Completely. He's absolutely locked in, has total trust in David. Um, and should he? No. He's lying every day, right? And Akish has bought it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, everywhere that what what is what has David actually been doing? Right. And what is he claiming that he's doing? Right. He, the, the, David is telling hey, I'm going off and I'm fighting the Israelites and I'm bringing all this stuff back. But in fact, he's not going after the Israelites at all. He's complete. And But but Akish believes every word, okay? What's that? Why do you think Akish believes him? What's going on that makes him so susceptible to being duped?
2: Well, Saul's after him all the time, so there's a common enemy there.
0: Okay, for sure. So. He, so he knows that Saul hates him. Saul's the king of Israel. It seems perhaps unreasonable to assume that David is doing things that are going to be to the benefit of the kingdom of Saul. That would totally make sense. Do you know What, what um, advantage is there to Achish as David is off on these raiding parties? You ever consider this here?
1: Maybe you could give him information.
0: Okay, maybe information. But what does David do on every one of these? When he goes off to these raiding parties, what does he do? He some stuff back. <laughs> <laughs> loads and loads of plunder are coming back. Everywhere he goes, he kills everybody and then takes all the livestock and brings it back. And I doubt he's just keeping it for himself. So he is really, he's highly profitable to the king, right? Whatever Achish, every day Akish gets more sheep, more camels, more whatever it is they're doing. And, and he just believes it. Which is really kind of funny because in the previous time we saw Akish several chapters ago, he thought David was a lunatic right so by some means and maybe the grace of god among them achish comes to complete trust in david that is altogether unfounded right okay here's the game we're going to play today i want you to try to figure out what is the narrator's point you got to remember this is this is a history but it's a narrative history that has an agenda what is samuel's ultimate well not samuel what is the author of first samuel's ultimate purpose and then we're going to try to figure out how does this fit into it what is the big picture ...that the author is trying to show us? The
2: big picture is that David was the anointed king. Yes.
0: Yes. This is is the purpose. This whole book, the true king, the the anointed king, this whole book, all of 1 Samuel... ...is meant to show us why David is the man. Okay? Okay? That David is the chosen one. That David is the one that God has chosen to be the king of Israel. And everything else, its whole thing is a defense of that, a preparation for that. And then secondarily, or maybe, all, maybe I should say ultimately, that David is not only the king of Israel for this moment, but he's the archetype of the great king of Israel. He's laying the foundation for what Messiah will be. So everything else that happens in some way, we've got to ask the question, why does the narrator include this? Why does he frame it as he does? What's going on here? How does it serve the purpose of the establishment of the Davidic kingdom through whom will come Messiah? That's what the whole game is all about. Okay, so we're going to watch that. we have got to try to figure out what does the Achish story have to do with that? How does it contribute to his ultimate end? That's kind of, as we're learning to read narrative, that's what we're asking the questions about. Like, What are you trying to go, do, do here? John?
1: Another big thing about this is that it shows how God rescued David from a very tight situation that he had gotten himself into.
0: A hundred percent, right? Over and over and over again, we're going to see God as David's rescuer. And that, how does that claim, how does the fact that God keeps rescuing David contribute to the ultimate end of saying that that David is the chosen king?
1: God, had a purpose for David.
0: God has a purpose for David, excellent. Would you add that, add anything to that? All roads lead to the same place in this book. So it's a sovereign will by now. Yes, that's right. God has determined that this man will be king. Psalm 2 says, I have anointed my king, I have placed him in Zion. And though that's ultimately looking at Messiah, it's coming again through the agency of David. And whatever God determines to come to pass for his king will come to pass. We, we've seen it. We've seen the echo of this in Jesus' life where like the crowds come after Jesus and they're going to throw him off a cliff and somehow he just ducks through it and they miss him, right? That same thing that though a thousand have fallen on my side, nothing's going to harm me, right? That is what's going on with David. So every time we see David slip the noose, what we're supposed to recognize in that is like, okay, God will accomplish his purposes no matter what armies are, are you know, aligned against him. Okay, this is going to fit into that. There's going to be a little bit more to it, but, and we'll, we'll see it as we go. Okay, we'll kind of take a little bit at a time. So let's go, let's do, which part do we want to do? Uh, hmm, where do we want to start? Oh, I already said this to you guys, but I put it in my notes, so I'll say it again. First Samuel 27, 9, if you go back just a bit, listen to this. This is kind of the answer to the question. One of the reasons that I think Achish is is so hooked in here is in seven nine. whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, clothes. Then he returned to Achish. So Akish is partly blinded by the fact that David is so profitable to him, right? Be aware of that. Sometimes the guy that's greasing your palms might be doing more than you realize, right? That's what's happening with Akish, yeah. This isn't too much of a tangent, but how does it seem possible that Aikish has not gotten word of his own people being destroyed, whereas for some reason throughout this entire land, the word of Saul and David seems to be right. Where he goes. Right. Okay, it's a great question. How has how has David gotten away with this so many times, and word hasn't gotten back? What What do you guys think? Yeah. how How is how is he so duped? Cat first.
1: Because he killed everybody.
0: <laughs> I think that's the bottom line right? Because he killed everybody. So when you kill everybody, there's just fewer people that can report, report the news. No suspicion
1: that you've never heard from your people?
0: I know, I know. It, I, I agree with you. There's some, there's some craziness to that. Ray, did you want to say anything? Was that your answer?
1: Verse 11 says exactly that. He killed
2: everybody so that nobody could bring news back.
0: That's right. And I think that but you still got to wonder, Like, does, does no one ever stumble across a village where everyone's dead and the sheep are all gone, you know? But, but I think that's the, part of the strategy is there's simply no informants. Right? Now, I don't think he could have gotten away with it forever. And I don't think, I, I think in all things, this whole narrative, Zach, when you read it, and you're supposed to think, wow, that was really lucky. That they're coming around the mountain, and at the last second, Saul gets pulled away. That they, you know, that they go into the cave, and it just happens to be the cave where Saul is. You know, like thing after thing after thing. So I think part of what's supposed to happen is, okay, David is a strategist, and he's going to do so many things well. And yet, nobody's that good. Nobody's that good. Which is, is meant, all of, the, all of these things that seem implausible and yet are, at that point, what do you do with, what do you do with that gap right there? You, exactly right. At the end of the day, you're like, okay. And the favor of the Lord was upon him. That no matter what he does, it just ends up working out. So we, you're, you're supposed to have that sense of like, man, there's got to be more than meets the eye here. Okay, good. Tommy?
2: I uh, think it's also important to, to remember that these are um, nations that, that they' that even aside from war there's no peace and so the raids
0: yeah that's true
2: back and forth. they don't have clear uh, boundaries or delineations and so if a village is raided oh, you know the the Hebrews just came and raided that village again instead of you know maybe that was David and so you know like this is probably happening
0: it's a, it's a great point. So what, Tommy's comment, if you couldn't hear it, was that we, we got to recognize that these, this is a culture that's constantly at war, right? So whenever you study the Bible, you've always got to recognize that there are what we would call continuities and discontinuities between our time and the time of this. Continuities are like, hey, look, there's men and there's women. There's sheep. And, well, we don't have a lot of sheep in our lives. But there's, there's things that we could, like, this makes sense. This makes sense. But you have never lived your life in a time of perpetual, endless, you know, raiding and war, at least not in the context in which you live. There's always war in the world but not always where we are. And so if somebody was you know if somebody raided Salem and wiped it out, we would that would be noteworthy to us. You know, that would be a big deal, right? Um, but uh, so that's one of those things they just they're constantly at it. And by the way, that little note, just, I'm going to just file this away. We're going to we're going to have to at some point before we get done with the life of David we're going to have to contend with the, with the polygamy of this, which is so strange. We have This is miserably difficult to make sense of, like, how does God permit? Does he permit? How does he not intervene? Why does he never speak up against? How does this work with, with men having multiple wives? It's such a strange thing. And while I don't have a full answer for that, I do wonder if part of the answer lies in the fact that we're constantly wiping out the men. War is just blowing up the men, and it may be, that one man having multiple wives is because the ratios of men to women would get so askew in a constantly warring society, and that that was an attempt to provide for women. I'm not sure if that's right, and I'm not sure that it's satisfied. Did I just lose my mic? Yeah. yeah. My batteries just die. Apparently God does not like my thoughts on polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll take that out of the tape.
1: Uh, so is it batteries, do you think,
0: Scott? Bob's got batteries in his pocket.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he must have been a boy
0: scout. Be prepared. Okay, is that back on? Yes. Yes. Bob Blacksmith, ladies and gentlemen. So as I was saying, God hates polygamy in every circumstance. Uh, John
1: uh, Two things uh, First a more recent example uh, uh, Among the American Indian tribes uh, Cherokees had frequent warfare If a
0: Yeah, that's the exact phenomena that I think may explain it. And also Of course, yeah. And there's there's all sorts of you know imagery about the king, not not a lot of wives, not a lot of gold, not a lot of horses. In
1: David's violating this. Solomon will violate that huge twig- yeah. that exclamation
0: point. No, no question. And we will there's gonna be times we're gonna we're gonna have to talk about polygamy more before we're done this thing. So I just want to kind of lay out there the continuities and discontinuities are part of the things we gotta grapple with as we make sense of what we see in the text. Okay, so let's keep going here. So uh, Akish is uh, loves David, trusts David, and how do his men feel about him? Hate him. One of, one of the things that's surprising is that Akish is so beholden to his men, right? Normally you think the king would just be like, so you're all dead, you know? He, the, king, the king does not submit to the advisors, but Akish does, which is odd. Kelly, did you want to speak to that? Well, no, that- <laughs> Oh, no question. I think he ended up some pride in that, that
2: he won over the David who slayed his 10,000s. But his, his strategists
0: and his, his, the band under him were not sniped by that. So yeah. It's was like, federal. he's in Aegis's cap. Yeah, I think you have, so Kelly's saying that one of the things, so he's getting financial gain. If you want, it's kind of like, how, why do people do what they do? Well, it's, it's always an appeal to the same thing. So, you, you know, if you appeal to my sense of greed or my sense of pride, you're probably going to win, right? And that's what's happening here. He's, gonna, he's, getting, he's making money off of David, but he's also got Saul's guy that hates Saul has come onto my team, you know? And you like having the opposite team's star quarterback playing for you. And I think that Akish is getting some, some pleasure out of that. Now, he is, it's just foolish that he's so dumb to not realize how he's getting hammered by it, but I think it's got to be part of, like, you know, God bringing about a blindness in his life. Okay, so the men are, like, not having it. Like, you got to get rid of this guy. He's going to kill us all. It's bad news. And I I love this this line here. It reminds me of my favorite movie when it says, uh, in verse 4, Send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. Uh, Braveheart. Right? That's the Irish in Braveheart. Remember when like, they were all in the battle and then they, they meet at the line and then the Irish turn around and shake hands with all the Scots and then go fight England together? That, that's what he's expecting is going to happen. But it's not. It's not gonna, so they're going to prevent it from, from playing out. Um, all right, so then we keep going here. Where was I? In verse 8. Take a look 29, 8. But what have I done? asked David. And what have you found against your servant, from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Okay, what is David saying when he says, "Why can't I go fight against quote the enemies of my lord, the king"? What do you? What is he saying right there? It's another one of these half truths. It's another one of these half truths. Very good, Bob.
2: Referring to Saul, his hard probably because that's his. Key.
0: Well, the phrase David is fond of the phrase "My Lord, the King," and it's always about Saul. Go back, look, take a look. Go to twenty-four eight. Then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, "My Lord, the King." And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. In twenty-six seventeen, Saul recognized David's voice. And said, is that your voice, David, my son? And David replied, yes, it is, my Lord, the king. And so when he says, back in our text, 29.8, why can't I go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? I strongly suspect that David is saying one thing, knowing that Achish will hear a different thing. Mm -hmm. And Achish is Altogether, happy to write himself into the role of my lord, the king. But really, so it's, it's half-truth or just a tricky, you think I said one thing, but I really said something else, right? And so, once again, Akish you know, takes the bait and doesn't understand, it, and it all works out. Now, do you think that David, what do you guys think? And I don't know the answer to this, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Did David want to go fight and pull an Irish in Braveheart? Was David simply bluffing and hoping, dear God, let me get out of this? What what do you think David's ploy was there? Given that, I don't know, maybe you know, maybe there's a clue that I haven't seen. What do you what do you guys think? John?
1: Personally, I think he was bluffing, and probably thinking, how am I gonna get out of this?
0: Yeah. That that's certainly an option. It could could vary. Anybody on anybody on the other side of that think that he was hoping to get in there and flip around and just wipe out the Philistines?
1: What did John say I couldn't hear?
0: John thinks he was bluffing and just praying that God would somehow get him out of this. Stuart?
1: I think just, he would just keep going and just wherever God leads. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's impossible to know. But he seems to be connected to God's will at this point in his life. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking he's figuring God will deliver Yeah. way through. Whether it's they send me away or I go into battle, something's going to happen. That he won't raise his hand to Saul because he could have already done
0: it. Yeah, and I think I think that's as good of answer as any that we—he's—he's he's following the Lord. He's in—he can't—he has to—he has to continue the bluff. He's basically painted himself into a corner, and his only hope is that God would intervene and, and pull him out of it. You know, which he does. Suzanne, what was your vote? Uh,
1: the, I mean, he's a warrior, and I think his his.
0: So it it may literally be at this moment, David doesn't know what he's going to do. It might be that he's going to get his men, because you notice it's not just David, right? Did you notice that? It's not only David that the Achish's men have a problem with. In fact, what do they refer to David as? In their lament. Go back to where they're complaining. What do they say? These Hebrews, Hebrews, plural. Remember, David's got like a whole slew of dudes that have been following him. So it's not just the one guy. So David may have very well been, like, well, we're going to go, we're gonna, we'll just play this thing out as it goes. And he's making it up as he goes along. It's highly improvisational. And he's just waiting for the Lord to, well, we've got to kill them all. We've got to do this. Or maybe he's going to get an escape. And I think he's probably relieved at this point that there's an answer. But we don't, we don't exactly know. Okay, a couple more hands. For, for, jump here. Yeah. yeah. I guess going back, what was his original
1: intent? I mean, it was to take, faith, <coughs> to take refuge
0: that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So Michael is saying that David's intent was to take refuge from Saul. And so, what about that? Uh, I'm just wondering,
1: did he have forethought? Of, of, was it just refuge, or did he have forethought
0: of doing something? I don't. Think, I think his primary goal. Remember, because he went here because he finally and sort of gives up. Like one of these days, Saul is going to kill me. And then he kind of takes this kind of less. You know, he's a little more more fearful than he'd been. But then it seems like he rallies there and, and trusts the Lord again. Zach. So. To support what you've been saying, so far from the entire story of Samuel, when David's in a min- at least in a minor moment of conflict with somebody, he's had a, re- he's like rebuted, he's rebuted to a degree at least once, and then the review of the reviews is kind of like, he provides him more information, and then he went with it. So in regards yeah. to his character, it seems like he's been very consistent, which then tells me that yep. the, he probably didn't know what he was yeah. looking for a sign, and may have had something in his mind of what he kind of wanted to do, but ultimately still looking for. I, I think, I, I really think so. And, it, and, it, and it's like his best friend, Jonathan. You guys remember when Jonathan goes up and he, and, he, and he wants to go fight, I think it's Philistines. They climb up a cliff to go fight, pick a fight with these Philistines. And there's this is great statement. He's like, let's go. And perhaps the Lord will fight for us. I don't know how it's going to go. Maybe, but let's let's see. And so David's in this place. He's going to place things. thing. I don't think he knows where it's going to go, but he trusts the Lord's going to work out. And it does, okay? Now, let's keep going because I want you to see something else here. This thing here is a story about David. We're studying the life of David. That's what the ultimate, author's ultimate point is. But we have just spent a ton of time comparing, looking at Saul's life and then now Achish's life. And the question is why, right? This is kind of what we opened with. Why the story of Achish? What is going on here? What does the author want us to learn about Achish? And how does it contribute to the total purpose to basically glorify David? All right? What is going on here? And what's, uh, what we're going to see, I think it's next week, is we're going to see Saul is finally going to die. Right? David has had... What is... Um, let me ask you this. What is David's fundamental desire concerning Saul's death? There's two, actually. There are two things. John, I'm going to let somebody else jump on this, bro. Two things that David wants to be true about Saul's death. What are they? He didn't do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that he didn't do it? Number, that's number two is that he doesn't do it. And what's number one? God does it. That it happens, right? That's, I mean, these are the two things. Like, he's longing for Saul to die by somebody else's hand. Okay, and this is this has been going on for chapters and chapters and chapters, waiting for Saul to finally get killed in battle or succumb to, you know, dropsy or something. And and but he but David David's not going to be about it. Well, while this whole thing is happening, Saul is someplace else, dying at somebody else's hand. Okay, so we don't know it yet in the story. We're going to see it next week. But the Lord is working it out. He's over here in Achish, hundred miles away from where the, where the thing that he longs for is happening. And his, his alibi is bright and clean. He's not there, right? Which is great. Now, I want you to see this, though, okay? So this is a story about David, and we get all this time given to Saul, all this time to Akish. What is Akish's job in the narrative? I want to give you guys some clues, and we'll see if you can't unpack this in the next 15 minutes, okay? Listen to this line. David said, then you will see, this is back in 28 too, David says this to Akish. Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And Akish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. <clears throat> now you got to go back. The narrator likes to lay things into the story. He puts details in here that he wants you to remember. Does that ring a bell for anybody? What is it? Saul what, Lily? Saul did the exact same thing. Take a look. If you go back. First 1 Samuel 22, 14. Ahimelech answered King Saul, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? So, that's 22, 14. 1 Samuel 22, 14 parallels 1 Samuel 28, 2. So, when we meet this Achish story, we're going through the Achish story. And Akish says, "Hey, you know what? You're the best. I want to make you my bodyguard." What the narrator wants you to go is like, "Oh, oh, well, that's weird," because David was another king's bodyguard, and your mind makes this connection from this point to that point. Okay, that's why it's valuable to kind of pay attention to these details. All right, how about this? Not only, oh yeah, Kelly Sue. Exactly right. That's exactly right, okay? So, um, and we're, we're building towards that. We're, we're building the case. But there the, there's going to be some very stunning comparisons between David's relationship to Achish and David's relationship to Saul. But then some very significant, like, perfect inversions that are all, it's, it's all part of the literary structure here of this, of this story. So 1 Samuel 8, uh, no, I shouldn't go there. We'll, go, we'll, go, we'll do an Achish side first. 1 Samuel 29.3. Achish replied, is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He's already been with me over a year from the day he left Saul until now, and I have found no fault in him. Where's the parallel to that in Saul's life, or in David's life, regarding his relationship with Saul? Do you remember this? Achish is like, man, this guy is a beast. He's a fantastic fighter. We've seen it. You've seen it. You may have to, you may have to like dig to find it. But that's exactly what Saul thought of David. Go back, verse eight, chapter uh, 18, verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. We have for so long been wait, you know, watching Saul hate David, throw spears at David, chase David around. But don't forget, before all that happened... Saul adored David. David was good for Saul. David was good for the kingdom. David won every battle, so he gives him a high rank in the army. Hey, marry my daughter. Marry my other daughter. There's all this, like, there's a great deal of goodwill. And so Achish says, you're, the, you're incredible. I want you to be my bodyguard. Achish says, you're amazing. I'll give you a high rank in the army. Saul says, you're amazing. I want you to be my bodyguard. You're amazing. Let's, let's rule the army, right? The same relationship that happened out here is now happening here, Okay. How about this? This one's a little bit more obscure. But take a look at this, 29.6. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, right? He's a non-Jew making, a, making an oath in the name of Yahweh. You have been reliable, and I will be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day until now I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. He's making an oath in the name of Yahweh that is completely wrong, right? He's, this is, he's, he's exactly backward, and he's making this foolish oath in the name of Yahweh. We've talked about this one. Do you remember when it happened for Saul? Saul takes an oath in the name of Yahweh. Go back to 1 Samuel 14, 39. He actually has done this a handful of times. The first one I could find, as surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of the men said. There was that whole thing where he almost, almost killed Jonathan and it was just completely ridiculous. Both of these men are very given to making foolish oaths in the name of Yahweh, even though neither one of them knows him, right? On the one hand, Saul is a Jewish king, but he doesn't really know the Lord and the Philistine doesn't even know him at all. But they're both fond of invoking his name when they think it suits their purposes. Beginning to see the pattern here. We're supposed to see Achish and Saul are like the same guy. Except, Kelly, there's a vast difference between them. Take a look at this. First Samuel 27, 12. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. And he's exactly wrong. And Saul says in chapter 18, verse 28, says this, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, he became more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. And we see it play out over and over again. Both of these men, both of them, right down the line, they're incredibly impressed by David's fighting abilities. They make him bodyguard. They make foolish oaths in his name. And they ragingly misjudge David, albeit in opposite directions. Okay? So now, with all that kind of laid out before you, what is the purpose of Achish in this narrative? Why does a story meant to exalt David, make the, give us time here, and then lay out all these very specific parallels to remind us of Saul? What would the author be trying to convey to us in that? <laughs> That's the big question I want you to get. Chris?
1: I could see it as David is a uh, sort of script of what the Messiah will be. Yes. It being tied to the fact that he's misunderstood from all perspectives. Even his own disciples, the Christ will come and have no idea what serving, what trusting, what loving means. Great. And the enemies of him also have no idea. He's not actually going to come with a sword, he's going to come with love. Just flips it, no matter which way you look at
0: it. Okay, that's great. So we're gonna we're gonna build a list of these things. One of these things is that David confounds everyone, right? Like he's Saul cannot make sense of him. Achish cannot make sense of him. He's just kind of he doesn't fit into their boxes. And when the Messiah comes, he too is gonna be a, a bewildering figure to everyone. They can't make sense of him. So this is absolutely true, Gary.
2: Maybe the the writer of this narrative wants people to know that even an enemy king an arch enemy Philistine can see the excellence of David.
0: Oh, this is true. Yeah, there are things there are cuz there are things that he gets exactly right. His 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 supremacy, right? Not only seen by Achish, but I would say contrasted to Achish. We'll unpack that more in a minute. So, yes, Dan. I think a
2: piece of it too is that the author is showing this is what kingship looks like when God is not behind them. Yes. Whereas This is also what kingship looks like when God is with them. David versus the other two kings.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. So this would be, to put this in a little bit more painful terms, you could pick your, it doesn't, we'll we'll pick President Biden because he's the current president. But if we made a list, right, of like the U.S., like, you know, the leader of the United States of America and the leader of Russia and said they're similar here, 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 and here, that would be, that would be a discouraging moment, right? Saul and and Achish are enemy are enemy kings. They're like they're there are arch nemesis, right? And yet, my goodness, click, 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 click. When it comes to the most pressing question, the deepest thing that this book is concerned with is the understanding of David and what the king ought to be like and what the king will be like, there's not a nickel's worth of difference between Saul and Akish, right? And in the sense that we would be insulted or embarrassed to find out that, you know. Whatever it is that you happen to lead, whoever, wherever you're in charge, if your, if your nemesis was just like you, that would be a drag. And that's, that's exactly where we're going with this. is There's no difference between Saul and Achish. But there is a difference between Saul and Achish and one other guy. You're meant to see this triangle of these kings and David set as the, as the apex of it. Yeah, please. Okay, uh, no. Okay, so the question is: Did David go to Did David go to the Lord before he goes to Achish? And the answer is no, he didn't. Now he has over and over and over and over again turned to the Lord, trusted in the Lord. But what gets us? What's what gets him here is he's like, man, God has rescued me forty-seven times, but who knows about forty-eight? right? And then, he, and then he flees. So David goes here in a place of weakness and lowliness and fear, and he's going to start making some bad decisions, right? We've been waiting for it to, it's going to start getting worse as we go. Um, but even despite the fact that David is in a moment of fear, God persists in rescuing him, persists in his kindness to him, even though he's blowing it, right? So David is not merely the archetype of like the one who gets it all right, but he is the one who, who experiences radical grace when he, when he blows it. But he gets a lot of stuff right in contrast to Akish and Saul. Good, 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 good. Okay, anybody want to add anything to that, Tommy?
2: I think it's interesting yeah. that though he's he's a warrior, he has a um, sort of like a hand of peace when when it comes to kings. So with Saul, he doesn't seek to kill Saul, though he has myriad opportunities. And the same thing with Akish He's so close to him, like you know his bodyguard forever, and yet he never raises his hand directly against Aish himself. That's right. And so very similar to, to Christ with the rulers that were over. At any point, he could have, you know, called down to angels, destroyed everyone around him. But instead, he submitted himself to the authorities that God put
0: over. Absol- people, godly people in authority have a high view of the authorities whom they serve under. Right? Ungodly people merely like their own authority. But David is profoundly respectful of all authority, which I think is part of the seat and ground of his own. One of the reasons that God, God enables him to do that. Yeah. Okay. Terry?
1: I just think that that would be... A Horrible job.
0: What, king of Israel?
1: He had a conscience about this, about killing all of those people and men, women, and children just over and over and over.
0: Yeah, I mean, David is a man of war, right. which is why he's. What, what's going to be the consequence of that in David's life? He doesn't, he doesn't get to build the temple. He wants to build the temple. God's like, you know what? We're going to have some less bloody hands than yours build this temple. Right? There's going to be, there's going to be, there are, there are ways where God uses him in that, in that end, but it, there's no question it's, it has a deleterious effect on his, in his soul, and God limits his access to things because of it, right? So we can, we can at, the, at the right moment, you're grateful for people that are willing to stand against enemies, right? As we see today, we maybe forgot for a little while, but the world is ruled by the disciplined use of force, right? And there's a place for that, but it impacts those that are wielding the sword, to be sure. Yeah. Catherine? Um, How
2: even leaders um, who are, well, David, just listening to God, walking with Him, consulting Him, even they have moments of weakness. Even they can be easily swayed, or well, I don't know how to say it, but but maybe they get tired. Oh, for sure. And just I'm just going to do it on my own.
0: Uh-huh. And that's what David is this double character, right? He is, on the one hand, the type of the Messiah, but he cannot be the Messiah. He cannot fulfill his own promise. We've seen it over and over again. Okay, so here's where it lands, you guys. There's all these similarities between Achish and Saul, and the point, I think, is to say that Saul is a king like any other. He is the king of Israel, but there's not a nickel's worth of difference between him and their greatest enemy, Achish, the king of the Philistines, right? Saul hated and feared the one that he should have loved and trusted. Achish loved and trusted the one he should have feared and mistrusted, right? Saul misses it all. Saul, Saul is enamored by the same things. Saul makes the same kind of decisions. And then he gets it terribly, terribly wrong. And when you compare David to both of these guys, he stands above them both. He is the only, the narrator wants to see, do you get it yet? It's David. He's the only one worthy to be the real king. David is actually unlike any of these other guys. Not unlike them enough to meet your deepest needs. But he is unlike them enough to be the temple from which the Messiah will come. The Messiah will be born of the line of this man. Which is really pretty exceptional. We had heard like a thousand years. It'll be from Abraham. It'll be from Isaac. It'll be from Jacob. But there's been no winnowing of the line until today. Until now. Now it will be of this guy, David, who is a king above all the rest. He is very much, in the Old Testament narrative, he is the king of all the kings. The high watermark. And it is from him will come the one who outranges not just Achish and Saul, but is better than anyone who's ever lived. David is setting us up for that. Okay? So next week, David's going to finally get what he longs for. All right? We're moving. We're, we're moving. Well, maybe not quite. We're moving in to this climactic moment of the death of Saul. And then, what's going to come after the death of Saul? Yeah. What is it? Enthronman. The enthronement of David. He was anointed king like a hundred years ago, like forever ago. What is it? Literally, it's like thirty years or something. Uh, it's like it's like a lot, sixteen. What is it? Do you remember? 17. 16, 17. It's like a long time, right? From November to January is like it's a long time here. Okay, and uh, he's been anointed, but he won't become king. Saul's got to die. So we're we're, we're moving there. And there'll be some great things. But strap in, because it's also still going to un- unwind a little bit for him. OK? So go to the next chapter. We'll talk it again next week.